You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Clear the aisles, the projectionist has smicha. Hi. So I'm here with uh, my good friend Mark Gottlieb. Yitzhak Kolakowski is here. He's going to be joining us a little bit later. Uh, Mark, I know that uh, I'm very excited, really, because when I told you the film I was going to discuss, uh, you said, oh, that's one of my favorites, too. And, we, and you know, so I'm really, I'm, I'm chomping at the bit to get to it. But first, <laughs> let's, let's do things chronologically, because the film I've picked is a film that's uh, from 1981, just at the, uh, as we say, the Yiddish grainitz of where we're holding, because it's always 40 years. Um, but you're actually talking about a, a, an earlier film. So why don't we start yes. with your film first? Sure. So tonight I'm going to talk about Breakfast at Tiffany's, 1961 film directed by Blake Edwards of the Pink Panther fame and uh, Bo Derek's, uh, I think, <laughs> husband briefly. Yes. Um, right. Oh, why don't we talk about that? I think he was married to Julie Andrews first, right? Was, was, was Blake Edwards married to Julie of Andrews course, as well? Of course. That's wow. why he, he created, I think, her, one the, probably her greatest cinematic vehicle, uh, Victor Victoria. Yes, he did direct a screen. I think he directed and wrote the screenplay. Right, yes, yes, yes. Um, right. Well, look, Breakfast at Tiffany's is an iconic film you know, with uh, the, the ethereal Audrey Hepburn as Holly Golightly, which sounds like a, a Bond, you know, a Bond uh, villain of Hal or heroine. Yeah, yes, yes. Um, of course, the name is, is somewhat artificial, as, as you learn in, in, in the course of the, of the plot of the film. The film is a, a screenplay written by George Axrod from the novella by Truman Capote, um, just written a few years before. This was a hot property, what we would say a hot property uh, in terms of people getting to the Truman Capote novella and uh, the co-star, the the male lead is uh, none other than George Papard, who would later go in my day, the the A team. <laughs> yes. um, he was yeah. the colonel. Yeah. Um, and George Papard, you know, had had some real uh, acting, um, you know, ve- vehicles or showcases, and certainly Breakfast at Tiffany's, I think, is. Is, is likely the the most prominent um yeah. he had a share uh, of being, i i i remember him from the carpet baggers that was the a carpet movie. baggers the carpet yeah. baggers that was i remember him. that was again he was very handsome george Papard was at, as as a handsome young and, and, and he kind of an underplayed role very cool not you know kind of like an unflappable but in a moment of great passion could convey that that sense of of deep you know emotion and in this case, you know, love for uh, for Holly. Um, I think Breakfast at Tiffany's is also famous not just for its, you know, five Academy Award nominations. Very famous. One of those Academy Award nominations that was a win was for Best Song, Moon River, the Henry Mancini uh, and Johnny River um, ballad. Um, but it, it has a kind of an underbelly it's got this famous uh whitewashing or or yellow uh, yellow face performance yeah, yeah, by, by mickey rooney, rooney. yes yeah, mickey rooney is mr yeah i mean it is it is a painful thing to watch not because of the pc uh taboo that it breaks um but i think just the film the the, the acting and the the characterization it, it's very it's very cartoonish and it's it's really I don't want to say it's a blight on the film, but from an artistic point of view, it's certainly not a highlight. It is a, a low light. Um, but it's also a wonderful performance understated by Buddy Epson. Yeah. Uh, sure. You know, as uh as Holly's dad. As right? Holly's no, not Holly's dad. Oh, Holly's Holly. ex-husband. Oh, it's Holly's ex-husband. Oh Holly's ex-husband. Oh. So just you know, the story basically. In a nutshell, is that we we open the film with this you know beautiful um, socialite who's having breakfast at Tiffany's. I I, I pass Tiffany's 
every day on my way to work because my, my <laughs> offices are on the east side of Manhattan on 56th Street uh, between Lexington and 3rd. And of course, the corner of 57th Street and 5th Avenue is, is Tiffany's, the Tiffany's World Headquarters. And it, it, I, cannot, I cannot tell you how, how nostalgic every time I, I pass Tiffany's, I, I do think of the film and I think about how they must have filmed that scene at like 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. because there's not a car to be found. It's very serene and quiet. But you know, you quickly learn that that Holly is a socialite, uh, sort of uh, getting money on a scam. You know, visiting this crook in Sing Sing, hosting parties, and she's intrigued when this writer, kind of a down on his luck writer, who hasn't published something in the past five years, but has these good looks and charm and wit. Um, they make a connection, but she needs to marry rich. And he's having an affair with the rich woman in, in apartment 2E, Patricia Neal, who is uh, in uh, um, that lovely Disney film, um, the parent of, of the George Rappard character. And, you know, having, having this, affair and and keeping him afloat financially until he gets this is this new break with uh, a story that's going to be published and you know to me the the most significant insight that i i think the film besides portraying kind of the glitzy the the carefree life of a socialite it does raise questions of identity and who you are and what what's your real self and, and your real personhood. Holly Golightly is, is masquerading as something other than she really is. She grew up in Texas, in rural Texas as Lulu, Lulu May. Uh, and she she's married to this man many, many years older than her. And she escapes. One day she, she just runs out of town and, and takes a, a bus to either Los Angeles and Hollywood and then eventually makes it to, to New York. But the question of who really is you know holly at her very core is she just this surface ditzy kind of you know um media hound or, or fame fame you know hungry woman or does she have a soul does she have a a real sense of of of, of love of care of connection and i think the film in a kind of subtle way shows you that even the surface face and they, they there's a with masks there's a scene with masks I, I do think the the question and the theme of identity is very prominent but the conclusion or, or the way the film unfolds is that a connection is more significant in this lonely false world that we live in that we could you know go to the parties and we can have the the friends that are you know there to populate the room and we want to get the rich husband and all of these things that claim us on the surface what's really beneath it and I, I think this is a story of redemption in the end you know we're led to believe that Paul and Holly are, are going to be together. And it's because of the fact that they understand each other, the fact that they get each other. It's not the fame and fortune. It's it's the qualities of character and personality that ultimately win the day and, and conquer the socialite life. And I think that's, I don't know if that's an intended theme, if the theme is, is just meant to be fluffier and lighter and, and kind of a confection. Uh, but I, I see an actually uh, more grave or more consequential theme in, in this question of, of true identity, of who who these people really are, who these characters really are, and and their choices. Right. So so it's sort of like a um, a musterschmuse, in fact, for young people who yeah. you know, who think that they're all riding a crest of of excitement, and and the film hints to the I guess the hollowness, right of yes. Of the existence of that, that culture, despite I, the I fact so. that it's despite the fact that it glitters like diamonds at Tiffany's, it really 
Um, you know, it really is empty. And, and of course, the, the actor, I mean, the writer is also in a way, um, you know, into it, right? His, his affair and the, 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 that he's being, that she, he's sort of the gigolo for, yes. uh, for Patricia Neal. He acknowledges that there's something deeper, there's something more meaningful, that I don't want to have this, it's not, it's not a one-night stand, but it's a regular, it's multiple night stands, it's the same relationship for some external, some transactional purpose, devoid of real love, devoid of real understanding, devoid of real connection. Right. And he gives that up as well. Right. It might even be, although again, I, you know, it, it, it's been years since I've seen the film, it might even be, I think, you know, when she reunites with, when he comes in for a couple of minutes there, Buddy Epson, right. you know, he's, he sort of represents, you know, yes. uh, authentic. More honorable, right. more, you right. know, a homey, a sense of of, of mora- you know values family which she, yes, which she was too, which which she was too young to appreciate yes uh, it's almost like that and then she comes back in some sense at the end not to dock not you know not to 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 dock lightly but to her i understand Deeper, I, I understand, which is, is. Many, which is many times, sometimes, you know, it, we can't go back, you know, and, and, and erase things, but we, we can be reminded by ghosts of our past about now I get it, you know, if only. And, and so you're saying that the film, although it, you know, uh, it, it doesn't necessarily give you like in the, in, the, in the closing credits, you know, what their life is going to be, but it gives the sense that perhaps a, a more authentic, real uh, existence yeah. they'll will give it a try they'll, they'll they'll try this this more um this more connected this more character driven this more uh you know deep you know, Ma- you know mark 19 you know all, all the films made like around from 1960 including psycho all the way till about 1968 or 69 um well i would say maybe perhaps change things and then of course midnight cowboy but the films uh, up until this point you know they had they had they had a lot of issues dealing with the censor with censorship and how adult they could go and 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 i think i, I haven't seen the film in, in many many years but you obviously have, have seen it more recently uh, do you feel that um it does qualify as a, a film that even an adult audience today, or would they see the strictures there where there are too many things unsaid? Is it prudish in any way, the film? Do you think it's... Um... I don't think it's prudish. No, I think there's there's definitely a, a glamour and a sexuality, even a, a kind of an edge, you know, to the film in its, in its, less explicit it's more suggestive than explicit for a film from 1961 it's not you know it's not explicit there's nothing in it that you know uh, a person couldn't watch and come out of it saying well you know there's this affair and some allusions to other affairs but it's not it's not graphic it's it's much more restrained in that sense Mm -hmm. i mean there's a, a a party you know, a lot of people are drunk. Um, it, it looks a bit orgiastic, but it's not it's not sexually explicit. Um, I think it it it's more tantalizing by the suggestion than than the explicit nature. It's not explicit. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So yeah. I, I think in, in that sense, it does feel like an older film. Yeah, and, and as you say, it it, it seems that. Um, just you know, looking on Wikipedia and other sources, it seems like what has stopped the film from being appreciated again by modern audiences is the blight of Mickey Rooney's portrayal, which 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 casts such a, a, a ugly pall over it that it's almost like the film can't be watched anymore, which is which is unfortunate. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Yeah, yeah I, I think the film is is much more than that. Sure. That moment or that, and that. again, remember, you know, uh, like we say, you know, I, I, you know, Mickey, like I said, has been on record about it. You know, Mickey said, you know, you know, in, in 2008, he said it breaks his heart. He says Blake Edwards wanted me to do it because he was a comedy director. He says they hired me to do this overboard. We had fun doing it. Um, 40 years, in other words, you know, till yeah, you know, Mickey, Mickey acknowledges that even even taking away the yellow, you know, face. And and the prosthetics that he wore, the prosthetics and and the gro- 
it's just an over-the-top character. It's a right. very right, which is, character. Which is again, I again I, I happen to think that Blake Edwards was a talented director, but he had it a tendency slapstick. I mean, that's right. like a slapstick right. dimension. Right, right. He had a tendency to do that, as you can see. You mentioned the Pink Panther. Yeah, the film. Pink Panther, yeah. Right, but but even in Victor Victoria, which has, you know, again, Robert much, Preston. Much more subtle, Victor Victoria. Well, yeah, but still, you know, Robert Preston has a lot of fun, you know, in, yeah, in that right. film. Yeah, but there's, there's nothing there's, that's so slapstick or so clearly cartoonish in Victor. Yeah, well, and again, from what I remember. Uh, well, right. And of course, uh, you know, 10 and, uh, yeah. you know, and, and it's obviously, you know, a, a caricature. It's really a, just a sex. A, That's a know, fa fantasy. That's a, a fantasy, fantasy sex comedy. Yeah. yeah. But, but so I think what I'm saying is Blake Edwards, I think, you know, no one's going to confuse him with Marty Ritt. Nobody's going to confuse him with, you know, with George Stevens. You know, part of what yeah. he does is really, I think, try to go light, like go lightly, yes. and you know, and, and 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 he and he believes he does, you know, make make important points. And again, like I said, Victor Victoria, I think, made a lot of important points about identity. And clearly, I, I think probably the most inspired casting is obviously Audrey Hepburn. I mean, like you say, um, you take her out of the film, the film is, is somewhat. Uh, I wouldn't doesn't, call it doesn't work. forgettable, <laughs> but it's really, it's really Audrey Hepburn. And she, um, um, I saw someone made an interesting comment about the film. It's Eliza Doolittle's naughty American cousin. Yes. I saw that as well. That, I yeah. thought that was sharp. That was insightful. Right. 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 Yeah. And again, and it's interesting, you know, we talk about, you know, Eliza and Julie Andrews, you know, Julie Andrews, of course, was the, she, she originated the role on Broadway. Broadway. Right. And, 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 and Hollywood for some reason didn't think that she could play the part because she didn't have that ethereal beauty. I mean, Julie Andrews is not a, a is not a, a unattractive, a, a, a unattractive woman. woman. Right. But there's something about there was something about Audrey. Audrey Hepburn that was sort of like, wow, the you pixie, know. you know, the pixie, you know, angelic, cherubic, right, you know, Nate, right. you know, waif, <laughs> yes, waif like, right, and 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 she definitely, you know, it's, as it's a, her, it's her, it's her personality and character that's so beguiling. I mean, her beauty is is clearly present, but it's her. It's her impish character and her, yes. her kind of, you know, uh, carefree, you know, come what may attitude that is so attractive. Yeah. Well, you know, when, when I talked about charade, I talked about how you had this, you know, you know, the, the Peter Stone who wrote charade, a Jewish fellow, he had in mind Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn. Yeah. As, as, that's who we wrote it for. And both yeah. of those are really, you know, as I talked about Carrie the last time you were here, they, you know, they they are who they are. They, and that's why I think Audrey Hepburn, you know, Eliza Doolittle is still a character, is a period piece. Right. And uh, she does it great. But Audrey Hepburn is is who she is in the in the here and now. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, um, this is a yeah. real woman. This is a right. yes, this is a, a real modern woman, a, a, right. a woman that our times could could really get and yeah i have to tell you i have to tell you again you know, she retired from acting and and part of it was similar to carrie's because you know she wasn't going to play some you know uh, you know some older woman who's going to come in and you know and, and have and and, and 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 you know uh chomp up the scenery you know either she's the film or she's not but i think i, I think the film one of her last roles um was um wait until dark where she plays a blind woman blind, in New York, yes. and it's who is a scary, and, a thriller, right, of. right, and and, and that's yeah. also again, if you want to see some Audrey Hepburn stuff, I think she's she's excellent in that, and again, she carries that film as well, despite the fact that it has Alan Arkin uh, as the uh, prime sadistic uh, uh, terrorizer, along with a great great performance. If you're going to watch Wait Until Dark, Richard Crenna. You know, Richard Crenna, who I knew growing up as Luke from the real McCoys uh, as, a, as a comedic actor. I think of Richard Crenna from First Blood with with, uh, with, with Rambo. With Rambo. With Rambo. Right. He's also, of course, Richard Crenna is in uh, Body Heat. He is uh, oh, Kathleen. Really? He's Kathleen Turner's husband that William, oh, Hurt, okay. that William Hurt is supposed to kill. But Richard yeah, okay, Crenna, Richard Crenna had been a comedic actor. Mm -hmm. And in Wait Until Dark, he he plays on his good guy. Um, persona, and but he's really the most cruel person as they're going to try to uh, terrorize this blind woman. And again, talk about you know siding with Audrey Hepburn. She she had that capacity 
um, you know, much more, you know, much more than her namesake, Kate, who was probably a much more, who, again, they're, they're not related at all. But in my mind, when I was growing up as a little kid, I always thought, hmm, Catherine Hepburn, Audrey Hepburn, are they sort of like, you know, cousins right. or are something? Related? Right. Sisters. Right. Right. Are they related in some way? But, you know, um, anyway, but that's a, a, a definitely, if you can find it, you know, if the piece hard put, to find if the PC, Right. Yeah. The, the PC, probably on TCM or something, you could probably catch it, I think. But you, if you have Paramount. That's where it's, where it's streaming on the Paramount channel. Right. So, again, it's probably worth a, a watch and to, and to, you know, think about yourself, especially, I think, for a young person. But I, let's, I'm going to, you're talking about like a young person in their 20s and 30s, right? Rediscovering, them, discovering their real self. Uh, this is a, the film I want to talk about is really for kids. And it's a film that, it's really amazing film. Um, I have to admit, Mark, that I hadn't seen it until recently. But oh, wow. but the film that that it, it, it's the antecedent of is one of my favorite films of all time. So I'm talking about the film I want to recommend for families, for kids and their parents to watch. If they haven't seen it, is Time Bandits, 1981's uh, Terry Gilliam's um, uh, breakout film. As a, as, as, as a big Hollywood director. Now, I say it's an antecedent to one of my favorite films, which is Brazil, which is a film I don't even have to watch before I, I, I never have to watch it again to be able to talk about it endlessly because it's a film that, that left such a lasting pressure on me. But Time Bandits is really uh, Gilliam's way to make Brazil. Little history. Brazil was already in his head for years. And what was it? That, what was Terry Gilliam about? Terry Gilliam was the American um, uh, ha- uh, part of Monty Python's Flying Circus. You had the five English actors: Eric Idle, um, John Cleese, Michael Palin, Terry Jones, and Graham Chapman. Right. So those are the five English uh, Stickmachers who were the ultimate. Uh, you know, again, you could say it's Peter Cook and, and, and Dudley Moore started this, but they were this incredible team of improv geniuses. And, 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 and what was it this American Terry Gilliam brought to the table? He brought a, he wasn't much of an actor. He wasn't, he was sort of just a grub. He couldn't really do the type of voices that they could do. But what he was, was an imaginative person who did all the animation, all the weird sort of incredibly you know like like sensual and and crazy animation that goes through um uh monty python and in fact let, let me say it better the animation of in monty python skits holds those shows together right all those all those anim all those brilliant pieces the little, of anima- you know the little storyboards and the, right right the vignettes yeah. of, of of how one scene can mold into another and, and that's the reason why I think Gilliam saw himself as a director. Uh, he obviously was a writer and he understood comedy. And what he wanted to do was to bring that Monty Python sensibility, which was not just quick and funny, like let's say, but also so incisive, so cutting. That, you know, again, I don't know if you agree, Mark, but a lot of, you know, a lot of great American sketch com- comedians look at Monty Python as the holy grail of real incredible sketch comedy brilliant off the cuff like like you know like like quicksilver uh like like let's say i think the closest we've come to that is key and peel you know key and peel are really in a way the children of monty python they really are uh, again they, they have a very un, again they're much more political and they have like monty python is much more happy to basically make fun of everything everything can be imploded everything from a to z including themselves whereas key and peel i think have a um have an agenda and, and and maybe it's to right the wrongs of racism whatever they're about but they their style and their shtick is is is, is mamish downloaded completely from 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 the pythons so gilliam is really the the cement of the pythons and gilliam has an idea a grander idea and his idea is that the world is going to hell and what's and the reason the world is going to hell is because we are so fascinated with, first of all, television is doing it to us, right? Television is deadening us. And it's not the Python programs. It's the programs Python was making fun of, the game shows, the fact that people are just sitting in their chairs and, 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 and becoming 
couch Lude. potatoes to the extreme. Yes. 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 To inanity and greed. Greed. Wanting money. Con which is consumerism tied together with not the um, promise of what technology could do, which is providing this great new world with uh, the inventiveness, but really just to give you a better back scratcher, just to allow your meat to be cut exactly right and your potatoes to come out in a way that you can crunch them while you're watching television on your couch. In other words, what, what, what technology has done is basically just scratch your back and it really hasn't done anything in terms of being a tool to expand humanity. Right? It's sort of what Kubrick is saying in 2001, mm. in a way that you know that, that our technological reach has done nothing in terms of elevating us. And if anything, Gilliam is even further than Kubrick in this way, because Kubrick is saying that you know this is a crisis what our technology is able to do. What Gilliam is saying, the technology, we've actually, it's actually embroiled itself. We've come so embroiled in it that it's actually, it's, it's destroying our soul. And it's, and, and, and it's deadening us to the point that it's not going to go anywhere. And, and, and we are going to be, and because the opiate of, of, of what technology and television, everything is doing is deadening us to the real problems of the world as they are going to happen. And basically the banality of evil is going to be accepted because this is really what Brazil, which is the film he made, is, 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 is trying to champion. And it's a very dark and, and, and film. And he couldn't get the money for it because when people saw this screenplay about this sort of like like anti Worker, uh, yeah. a dystopian future An anarchist you know or right, right, right. anti uh, i don't know an anarchist but right, right. A, a dystopia that is such a downer he couldn't yeah. get any money for it so he and palin sat together and schmoozed about a movie that would work a kids movie right, right. so using all of gilliam's talent for, and remember, he made it for a, 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 a slight amount of money because he knew, Gilliam, how to shoot something with models. He was able to, to, to in, because of his history in animation, he was able to transfer that to film using animation and models and the shtickerai of Monty Python to create ideas and imagery that were transportive, like Harry uh, Harryhausen and other uh, you know, uh, auteurs of uh, epic adventure films. And this was going to be an epic adventure film called Time Bandits, where a child who was parented by actually parents that were exactly the evil uh, personification of what Gilliam hated, parents who couldn't care less about their child. Um, and the child represents the hope possibility this boy terry warnock i think his name was uh i think this is i think this is his only role now unlike mark unlike elizabeth taylor or mickey rooney when he was young he is not much of an actor and he never really became such a great actor he's not he's no <laughs> freddie bartholomew he's no he's not even a henry thomas from et <laughs> which came out a year later he but he does radiate a certain innocence and understanding that works with everyone around him um, and in the film, as you know, he um, he uh, is ignored by his parents. Uh, his, his room is decorated with scenes from history. He reads right. books yeah. of fairy tales and fantasy. He knows things. And yet he has parents that don't care anything about him, that don't aren't involved with him. And the world that he has is the world of his mind and his fantasy and what he's reading about. And incredibly, his closet, according to this plot, is one of the holes in the universe that these these six dwarves time traveling or time and dimension. Right. It's a nexus. It's a nexus. nexus where six dwarves show up. And these yeah. six dwarves were actually modeled after the Monty Python crew. And they took, you know, with great talent. Um, the head dwarf, the, the, the one who was uh, Randall as David Rappaport. Uh, obviously a Jew, a Koyan possibly. Um, and, and, and he, again, these, most of them have had parts uh, in various uh, uh, you know, science fiction and other films. But as I told you uh, uh, yesterday, when we, I told you we were going to talk about this, I actually feel this film, you know, makes a statement 
for little people. Like here's these six dwarves, although there's a lot of other major talent in this film, including the Monty Python, two of the Monty, two of the best of the Monty Python team, John Cleese and Michael Palin. Right. The dwarves are the stars of this film. Right. And, 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 and they are tremendous. They, and, and you, and, and you, you quickly forget, uh, you realize how small they are, but they are God's helpers, the supreme being. And they are sick of what the job they've been doing, which is to make shrubs and small things. They somehow have stolen God's ultimate um, architectural design for the universe, which shows you where the holes are, where, where you right. are able to slip in. And they uh, shoot into various places, including uh, Kevin's bedroom. And, so, and, and somehow Kevin kidnap him. They kidnap. Well, he gets first of all, <laughs> and, 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 and um, Terry Gilliam uh, shows here, he and Michael Palin who wrote the show. I mean, first of all, the dwarves start beating this kid up, you know, as soon yeah. as they, as soon <laughs> as they show unflattering portrayal. Right, of, right, of right, the dwarves. right, right. But, but you love them. Because they, yeah. they take you come Kevin to away. love them. You come yeah. to love them. Yes, you do. They're not the dwarves, you know, the more cheery Disney-esque dwarves. Not a, right. Right. And what are they? They're crooks. Right. Now right. you think about it, part of what you know why this film is so great, because you suspend disbelief right away. Because you know it's a kids' film. Okay, they're going to, you know, unlike Mark, what I think kids of today's time are looking at, oh, the, I don't remember what it is because I know comics very well. What is it? The infinity gauntlet of Thanos. And they're trying to find all these, all these things to remake, right? Like all of this, like mumbo jumbo type of stuff. They want money. Or, you know, comic, comic book. Right. The, without, right. without the deeper tropes. Right, right. Not even but, the, the actual comics themselves or graphic novels, but the film versions. Yeah. So right, we, right, what do they want? They don't want, what they want is money, right? In the beginning. What they really want right. is just money, and they just want to go to Aldi. And of course, it allows Gilliam to basically do an episodic take on various periods in history. Uh, Napoleon's war in the Italian campaign, which Ian Holm, Ian Holm basically steals uh, the film in, the, in yeah. the 15 minutes. There. He plays Napoleon. And of course, you know, all Napoleon wants is to is to fulminate about his shortness, about how short he is, and about all the other diminutive uh, uh, dictators and various rulers. And he's so happy to find these dwarves who are even smaller than him. And, you know, he and they by entrancing Napoleon, they're able to steal all these great riches that, that Napoleon had plundered out of uh, the, the, the city in Italy. Um, it also, by the way, I think created this idea of these portals, which is now, I don't know if you know about it, Mark, is in the Rick and Morty, you know, Rick and Morty, the- uh, Oh, I, I've, I, I've heard of Rick and Morty, but I've never seen- Right, Rick and Morty are always escaping into these portals. And this is, of course, is what's happening in, in, in these dwarves. These dwarves have these portals. They go from there, uh, from Napoleon's time, they then go to, um, uh, to what's called the, uh, the Robin Hood's time. And right. there's a, a, a maid Marian and Robin. Well, May, well, actually, Marian is actually Marian a man. Marian is actually is, is a man in this film. Marian is one of John Cleese is this sort of like upper crust uh, English twit as Robin Hood, who's sort of like uh, you know a civil servant who lives up to the ideal right. it's of kind of an inversion of the classic like, you know, version like, of. Right, the noble, like the Errol Flynn dashing Robin Hood. He's sort of not not a gay Robin Hood, but a Robin Hood who's sort of like, you know, okay, this is our job. We have to give to the poor. And the poor are in no way helped at all. The poor are, are shuffled in. And, you know, after they give them, you know, the, the goodies, they actually hit the, like, they are, they are lined up like, like mice or behema. And they bang, the, like they, they hit the, like each, after the poor get some sort of uh, silver bauble, they again get, they get hit by Marion, who gives them a, who gives them a punch in the jaw. I mean, that's the idea that they had of Robin Hood. Um, uh, after that, uh, they visit the, uh, there's another time hole that takes them to the ancient historical, um, it was the, he was okay, the, right. So th then they go to this, uh, uh almost a mythical, uh, Greek ruler, Agamemnon, right? Uh, and, 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 and again, there, there are records of him in, in well, he's, Agamemnon plays a, a crucial role in, the Trojan War. Agamemnon right. is the head of the Greek forces. 
Right. And, 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 and were they the ones who came up with the uh, Trojan horse? With the Trojan horse, right? Well, yes, Agamemnon, and it was actually Odysseus, the wily Odysseus, uh -huh. who came up with the Trojan horse conceit. Ah, but Agamemnon was They're on the same side. Agamemnon and Odysseus are on the same side. Right, right, the, and, and the right, and, right. And there's some adultery going on there too, I think, in the original myth of, of of the story. But but it's played by, and I think this might be one of his better roles, even though he's not there for that long. By Sean Connery. I mean, you. What happens is is that uh, Kevin, through this time hole, is is actually appears. In, in, in his time, and he fights a Minotaur, and it's a great battle scene. And again, you know, you know, just like in Brazil, where there's a, 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 a tremendous battle that the protagonist has, uh, Terry Gilliam, no, you know, it's, it's, it's funny, Mark, that in today's time, the fight scenes are so frenetic and so yeah. quick, and you can't, even, you can't even grasp what's going on. You know, Gilliam gives you a real fight scene. And whether it was, you know, Connery himself, as you know, even though he was already getting on in years when, when this film was made, uh, Connery was a bodybuilder. Connery, yes. you know, Connery, Connery was, a, was a, like, like he was a Mr. Mr. Scott, Mr. Scotland. In Mr. Universe, right? When he was yeah, in he was the Mr. Uh, Scotland. Yes, 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 yes. So there's a reason why they, they chose him as Bond. Um, and of course, he plays it with his toupee, but he is, he represents something so sublime, noble, uh, powerful, uh, humorous. He's everything that this boy is looking for in a right. father. In a father figure. Yeah. Yes. And, and, you know, and Connery himself loved the role. Connery actually told Gilliam that uh and I, I was reading this connery told gilliam that the boy is good but he's too he, he's too in awe of me film he said film him separately without me and then put the put the put the two parts together because you know the, the boy found himself as almost like me and alvin dershowitz the other week you know <laughs> i wasn't able really to get my real self out but so connery appreciated the part and connery gives the boy connery adopts the boy and says the boy is going to be his son and he doesn't want to go back to him this is really the best possible world um what what now the dwarves show up and uh the dwarves show up and they actually uh they actually uh take him from there but really the machinations behind this end up being the incarnate of evil the evil genius evil incarnate david warner and, and and I don't think he plays David, a good villain. He plays a good villain. I don't think he has ever played a. Uh, I don't think he was ever in any film where he disappointed. Yeah, he was. He, he is sort of the. He's better than Peter Cushing. You know what I'm saying? He is oh, really yeah. much richer than Peter. Yes, Cushing. right. <laughs> Peter Cushing feels wooden compared to David to, Warner. To David Warner and David Warner, and you know it's camp. You know it's not meant to be serious. But he is menacing the way he destroys people. And what does he want, Mark? What he wants is to remake the world. He realizes that the dwarves have God's master plan. Right. And he feels that God has made many mistakes. And that although he was made by God himself, which, you know, and he'll destroy anybody who says that. But he realizes that evil could remake the world with this map, and the world will be a technological world. It'll be a world that doesn't glorify nature. It'll be the world of, you know, the, the world of Brazil, which is really the world right. that, that, that Terry Gilliam, you know, dreamed about, that dystopia. That's the world that evil wants to, to have, and he just needs somehow to get these dwarves to him. And he gets they're them. They're too human. The dwarves are, they're too, they're too human. They're too... Um, representative of weakness and fallibility. It's the opposite of this bureaucratic evil that Warner is trying to, you know, right. voice in the world. Part of what they want, Mark, is to have fun and yes. to and to actually, you know, pull the plug out of stuff. Yes. Right. To be mischievous, to be, yes. to be independent and authentic. Yes. Whereas what he wants and all his underlings are basically yes. stooges. None yes, of them have any followers. Yes, right. followers. followers that he can just destroy. And that's what he really yes. wants. Now, it's the way he is able to get the map. And this is really an interesting idea from Gilliam is that he takes things out of time. In other words, Robin Hood is probably was a real historical figure in some way, although not the right. way we know him, as was Napoleon, obviously. The Titanic gets in there for a little bit as yes, well, brief, yeah. right? Briefly. But really what he wants them is to take them into the world of legends. He wants to take them into the world 
of legends, of, of things beyond time, of giants and ogres. And here's where yeah. Gilliam does great work in terms of how he displays the, the giants. One of, you know, the, there's uh, Catherine Hellman plays Mrs. Yeah. Ogre. And again, she's also in Brazil. Yes, right. And this the mother. She's 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 she's, she's the protagonist's mother in Brazil, correct. Yeah. And, and and Gilliam discovered her, of course, from a program that I've talked about on this show, which is soap, which is where Catherine Hellman showed her comedic chops and her ability to really play many, many ideas. Yeah. So Catherine Hellman and all they're all part of this phantasmagorical world that Gilliam loves displaying giants who come out of the ocean, who are, who are larger than, than anything you can conceive about, who crush little people that are running around, leading them eventually to this, this terrible castle, this, this incredibly dark place where evil resides. So it's interesting how evil is really part of something legendary. It's part of something that, that really resides within the deepest recesses yeah, well, of that, our, our country. You know, villains and, and the, the primeval serpent as a right. kind exactly. of you know, symbol of that. Yes. Or or like you know like like HP Lovecraft's ideas yes. of, of the Oilamato from beyond. Yes. Anyway what happens is they finally get there and they the the, the dwarfs uh, are hoodwinked by actually images of the 20th century uh, if you remember the 20th century game show and, <laughs> and, 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 and the game show host uh, from the program that Kevin is watching appears, the, the, the evil or the devil takes his role and the, the, his, his attendants are actually Kevin's parents. Right. Well, right. And they are able to, uh, to be Mafata, the dwarves into this new vision of what the world could be, which, uh, which again, they seem to be able to, um, uh, perhaps fall into. There's a great escape scene that happens afterwards. And there's a, if you remember, Mark, there's a scene where the dwarves are able to go back, obviously using the time hole to bring back um, cowboys, to bring back Sherman tanks, to right. bring, to, to bring back, to beat back the, the, the hordes of evil. Right. But of course, evil can win because yeah. evil is able to outsmart all right. of that stuff. Right. And again, at the end, the film is the Denoma, of course, is that really God finally intercedes the supreme being they don't want to call him god because they're not so on first name basis with him but here again gilliam uh reveals what i think is the reason why people should see the film which is really about why is there evil in the world what is the evil happening why does god allow this to happen and you know it, it, there is talk about free will there's talk about the fact that there needs to be a struggle there's there's talk about the fact that god knows what's going on and god is completely aware that evil is occurring, and God allowed the, the dwarves to steal the uh, to steal the map in the first place. Of course, God knew what was going on, and it really causes any person to think about: Is it? But why? Why did everyone have to suffer this way to get there? Right. What is being proven? It, 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 does this show how great creation is? Um, let's talk a little bit before we close uh, on this about a part that I know for many people is is incredible, which of course is the ending of the film. And, uh, you know, I guess spoilers ahead. <laughs> um, God destroys evil, but not completely. It's almost like there's still some of the mitzotes of, 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 of evil left. And it, it gets carried somehow back to, to our present time and it lodges itself in the toaster oven of Kevin's parents. And it causes a fire. And um, Kevin awakes as the fire is about to uh, suffocate him. And it's only through a fireman who looks exactly like <laughs> Sean Connery that he's able to be saved. That's also Sean Connery's idea, by the way, that he should play that fireman. And his parents are out there having saved as much of their, uh, of their precious right. materialistic stuff. stuff as possible, right. their stuff. And uh, when the firemen discover the cause of the fire in their super duper toaster oven, Kevin warns them like any good parent would warn their children, don't touch that. And yet they are drawn to it to a point that when they touch it, they immediately explode into husks of smoke. And this is, and, and, and that's, where, that's where Gilliam ends it. You know, right. you, you, let me just end with this. The film a year later that's considered breakthrough for children, E.T., as you can think about, right? Here's a child's fantasy, a child discovering, a child, right? And here we have Kevin, this child. 
The last shot of ET is is, and I'm going to talk about it in a later projectionist. But we know the last shot is is is, is Elliot looking up. Scene. No, he's looking up into the stars, watching ET leave, watching ET take off. Right, and but but what Spielberg does is show you his face, show you how he's grown, show you how he's able to sacrifice about what ET has done. In other words, this whole um, yeah, it's a redemptive, uh, it's a redemptive conclusion. Right, and, and he's willing to Spielberg, who related so much to Elliot because of his father who had left him, and 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 ET, whatever ET meant, imagination and ideas, and 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 you could you, you what Gilliam did a year earlier is you know how it ends. Basically, it's basically it ends with this kid is saying, Dad, Mom, what's going on? My world has been destroyed. And then he pulls back almost at at at, at hyperspeed back to God's perspective. And you, you go back into the cosmos and God is folding up, played by Sir Ralph Richardson, in a real throwaway role. He rolls up the map and that's basically it. So, you know, it really is very dark. Um, but 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 as Gilliam said, the kids love the ending, you know, you know, you know, and, 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 and I think, Mark, what, what would you say? I mean, your kids are a little bit old now, but would you would you show this to your grandchildren? Would you show this film? I don't think my wife would would approve, <laughs> let, let alone my kids. But look, I, I when I saw Time Bandits, I must have been 11, 10 or 11 or 12, something like that. And it appealed to me both the philosophical richness of the film because it has a lot of ideas, um, but the kind of quirkiness and the the kind of recklessness and, and the kind of danger that appealed to me. But I, I don't think it is. It's a children's. It's a film for adults in the guise of a children's story. That's what I would say. It's like it, it's like what C.S. Lewis talks about that hideous strength as a fairy tale for grownups. True, but Mark, remember. You know, although we we've talked about cereals and kids being dropped off, do you don't you think there's something about parents and children being able to go to a film together and 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 be transported? Oh, you know, you've gotten me to you you you've excited me, Avramel, enough that I'm going to take another look at Time Bandits. I haven't seen it for probably at least a decade, maybe more. I'm gonna it's on HBO Max, so I'm going to take a look at it. And I'm excited uh, to to dive back into that world that, you know, philosophically rich, but you know, very quirky and 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 very complex world. Yeah, and I would say, look, as much as I love Terry Gilliam's Brazil, I do think Terry Gilliam's career arc sort of really sort of went splat. Um, you know, the Fisher King and some other things. I I I sort of like the young Terry Gilliam. I sort of like when he was just experimenting when yeah. these, I, I think when he becomes this auteur, I, I, I think that, you know, or Parnassus, Parnassus or the, 12 monkeys, 12 again, monkeys, monkeys, people right, hold in high regard. Right. But none of them really none of them have the childish, uh, the childlike imagination or the childlike innocence or the childlike you know, emotional pull or speak to the promise of what you thought yes. you were getting with 10 when you see time bandits you said wow this is somebody and i think when when you one has to say that it's completely beyond bill and ted's excellent adventure you know what i'm saying i'm saying which is really sort of a ripoff of time it's bandits. A, yeah it's a cheap you know a, a much a dumbed down version right and this is really something and again just enough to be machabed the dwarves i think is good enough mark yes. we're gonna have to do this again next month Mitzvah Hashem. so looking uh, forward you, yes okay Yitzhak, i think you're up now So, uh, you know, Yitzchok, I know that uh, th this film wasn't one that um, that you saw, even though I, I know you told me you, you tried to show it when I told you my enthusiasm for it. I know you tried to show it to your kids who didn't seem to be, uh, didn't seem to catch on to them as it does, uh, as it did in the 80s for children who really, uh, really loved this film. Um, but, of course, uh, David Warner, who is such a, an important uh, figure in this film, probably, in fact, the most impressive of all the actors, uh, shows up in a film that you're pretty fond of. The one that I saw one time, uh, I think I saw it also on Criterion, if I'm not mistaken, is uh, not too much older than that, probably on the newer side of the movies I would watch, and I believe 1979, uh, Time After Time. 
uh, where uh, I believe it's Malcolm McDonald plays. Uh, Malcolm H2O. McDowell. It's it's Malcolm yeah, it's Malcolm McDowell and um, and of course David Warner. And David Warner plays Jack the Ripper. So H.G. Wells is a fictionalized version of H.G. Wells, but it's a fascinating type of a story. That a fictionalized version of H.G. Wells. Not only he writes a, a book about the time machine, he actually makes a time machine, and he goes into the future to San Francisco in the contemporary time in the in the 1970s, um, assuming it's, you know, he's going ahead about 80 years into the future from when he's starting and he, he brings he brings Jack the Ripper with him uh, and Jack the Ripper finds it to be, you know, big opportunity to kind of uh, get away. Continue. <laughs> in, other, in other words, basically, H, the, the conceit is, is that, um, and of course, it's a great, a very brilliant concept by Nicholas Meyer, who was the director. And I think, again, it was used again in one of the Star Trek, right? I think they basically used the same uh, idea in one of the Star Trek uh, movies where they, they went back in time um, to catch somebody. But basically what happens is, is that, um, is that uh, as you said, somehow Jack the Ripper gets a hold of, of Wells' time machine too, right? And he's able to escape yeah. it. And H.G. Wells realizes that his time machine has allowed one of the worst murderers in history uh, a chance to escape. So he himself goes into the future. Um, Malcolm McDowell does. And, yeah. and, and um, so, so what, what do you think? It's, as the film uh, you saw it many years ago, uh, do you think a modern audience uh, would appreciate it? Yeah, it's a very exciting film. It's a very interesting story. Um, I think, you know, especially if someone is is a, a fan of classic science fiction, you know, to have that, uh, to have H.G. Wells, you know, as a character. We, you know, we have actual recordings of H.G. Wells, and, and it's nothing like this character that we see in the, in the movie. I think actually uh, 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 Corey Ackerman, it talks about meeting H.G. Wells uh, in the 1940s. You know, he passed away, I believe, in 1947 or 48, if I'm not mistaken, sometime around that time. So he he lived to see to see some of his movie his writings made into films. The the uh, what is it called? The uh, oh, what was the one from the 1930s? That's the very famous. Uh, about a war in 1940, and then another war. Do you remember which, what, what movie that's called? You're talking about Things to Come. Yes. Things to Come is a great film and a very important film in, in, in terms of special effects, in terms of its message. Um, My look, understanding was that Wells didn't like it. <laughs> he didn't like the adaptation. Yeah, look, Wells himself was a quite stuffy person, and uh, probably not as um, interestingly friendly as Malcolm McDowell was here. Now, of course, you know, let, let, let's talk about really what's going on in the film, because it turns out that, Mal, you know, um, Jack the Ripper is really Dr. Stevenson, who is H.G. Wells' good friend, right? So he's actually been duplicitous. Uh, Wells, he's, he's Wells' friend in London, but he has this secret life as as this as this murderer rapist of Jack the Ripper um and uh so there's the betrayal that uh, and Wells realizes that this some seemingly charming person really hides but what's hidden behind this person is 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 dark dark evil um what's great about the film in my mind is the fact that um that there's a love first of all you know there's a love story um, the excellent, always excellent Mary Steenburgen is the uh, girl, is the woman that that he meets, um, and it's a uh, it's actually you know, uh, you know, he he meets her, and they have a whole love story, which of course is doomed, you know, because you know he tell he has you know he has to sort of tell her that he's from a different time, and the question is you know Will's you know is that maybe even more important, right? You know because because if Will stays in this time. He might have real love here, um, 
And, and many people feel that that chemistry uh, between McDowell and Steenburgen is really, really, it's really very incredible. Um, uh, I, I, again, part of what uh, 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 you know, David Warner, who I talk about, uh, who I've talked about in in his role in Time Bandits, is what he says in this film. Is he says when he when he's discovered, he says, "We don't belong here. I'm taking you back." He says, "I do belong here." Finally, in other words, the Jack the Ripper was a, a terrible anomaly at the end of the 19th century. Was 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 the most scandalous terrible ogre you know as ugly as, as as 19th century london was but what jack the ripper discovers is that a, that this is the 1970s is a world of serial killers a world of uh, of 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 snipering a world of bombing a world of terror like he says yeah <laughs> this is a future where he really belongs and i think that in that way it, it's, it's it's a an, message that, that, that reminds me of chaplin and on server go where he, at the end, where he's being taken away, which we probably talk about. I, did we ever speak about Monsieur Verdot? Um, Possibly, yeah, again. I think we did speak about it at some time in the past on the Stir episode. Uh, certainly, you know, bridges both of those worlds of, you know, uh, murderers rhythm and, and, uh, and film. But, you know, Monsieur Verdot, obviously a very controversial film, uh, you know, not as controversial as The King in New York. and certainly much better than a king of new york but uh chaplin you know was, a, was one of his last films i guess he only made after that you know, two or three more films he made the king of new york he made the the uh countess from hong kong and then i think that's it but in monsieur verdot as he's being executed he says you know i kill a few people and, and i'm considered a murderer but uh, you know uh, this is right after world war ii he says you know you you kill millions of people you're a hero you know it was uh which was certainly a you know a scandalous thing to say, perhaps referring to, to uh, the atom bombs. Which, you know, you know, discussions are generally understood that. No, no, the idea of, of changing. No, that's a good point. The idea of changing um, attitudes and how one generation's murderer is another person's uh, plebeian. Those are ideas. Because you could possibly say that that's that was the catalyst for that change. You know that that. That, you know, we became so desensitized to wanton killing uh, after experiencing two world wars and then and then the Korea and, and Vietnam that people became very, you know, you see all of these stories about men coming back from Vietnam, the you know, Rambo and everything else and being these these characters that, that are, you know, sometimes they're, they're heroes and sometimes they're villains based on that PTSD experience and who knows if it's not a uh you know a, a, a generational ptsd of you know all the horrors of the holocaust and everything else making us desensitized to the horrors yeah. of violence. well again but but i think part of what you know is as the back you know again as you know giuliani of course is considered a um a mocking you know a figure to mock at this point but we do know that the 70s and the 80s, which were the which were the apex of a violent, horrible New York, then um, you can see that in films like the taking the taking of Pelham One Two Three and other films, uh, we can see that there was a little bit of a curve going back, despite the uptick in, in murder and violence. It's nothing like it was during that period. So I think that I think you know to to assume that we are going to hell in a handbasket. Like you know, well, my. No, I was talking about the 1970s. I'm not talking about today. I'm right, uh, about but, right, but I think uh, what I'm saying is we can see that I think the pendulum has gone back a little bit. Maybe it might have been Reagan who ushered it in. I don't know what were some, but it, it was definitely. I think I mean, a, I mean, seat of using Wells, this dreamer of the future, uh, and haven't be disgusted with where the world has become. Uh, after all the terrible things that occurred in the mid 20th century, I think was a very good device uh to be used um people should also know that the incredible of course academy award winning Miklos Rosha uh uh provided the score for this film so in many ways it really is a um you know it is a, a great piece of of sci-fi fantasy and i think you should probably view it again Yitzhak. <laughs> you might it might be worth if you've only you sound like you've only seen it once but it still seems to i only saw it once yeah my wife and i watched it i think Maybe three years ago. So yeah, uh, it, it well, made a good impression. 
Yes. Well, again, it definitely, again, like I said, it's been the idea behind it um, has been used and, um, you know, it, 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 it really is in a way uh, a very sweet film. I think, you know, to me, uh, Malcolm McDowell, you know, is of course Roddy McDowell's son, as you know, and the Roddy McDowell is, was really part of Hollywood, uh, you know, royalty in some way, you know, he was, you know, he was the, he played and we, we talked about Liz Taylor last week. He of course was in the original Lassie with Liz Taylor. And of course, How Green Was My Valley, another real classic Hollywood film that has Donald Crisp in it. Um, so Roddy, you know, was, you know, was able to transition from child roles to adult roles. And his son, Malcolm, uh, who bears a very strong resemblance to him? Uh, really, br his breakout role when he when he first came to prominence was as to the ultra-violent, uh, terrible uh, um, thug in A Clockwork Orange, Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange from 1971, I think it was. And so it's interesting how in this film he sort of plays off of that. In other words, the same role that he had played seven years earlier as this ultra-violent, you know, um, you know, like like the worst, uh, sort of like Jack the Ripper's ch children. Um, here he actually plays the, you know, the 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 civilized person who's who's discussed with. So I think that's a that's a that's a cute uh, aspect of that. Um, so. Yitzchak, uh, I think that's a great addition to what we have been talking about up until now. So that's about it, my friends. So watch your step on the way out. We'll catch you hopefully soon. Take care, everybody. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 